0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I recommend the new Little
1: Women movie. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I recommend the photo essay, Let's Talk About Race. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today we are drinking Brandyland Spiced Imperial Stout, aged in apple brandy barrels from the Boulevard Brewery Company.
1: Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! My <laughs> gosh. The smell, <laughs> yeah, it smells like a cider. That's. Uh, I hold the bottle up to my microphone to pop it open, and so I got that in full force right in my olfactory.
0: Wow! I
1: am a giddy with anticipation what are we doing today editor grading always occurs in a social context we'll examine a study that measured how weight bias manifested when scoring writing samples work from overweight students was scored lower in some categories but teachers believed bias was far less of an issue than their scoring revealed later we unpack research on the impact of subtle changes in prompting on participant success in a simple logic puzzle the results show the importance of crafting assignments and assessments with a few essential elements Finally, we read commentary from an expert on helping research impact policy. Let's get started. Uh, So we can get into it. We read some papers.
0: We did. The first paper we read for our first segment is Weight Bias and Grading among Middle and High School Teachers. And this is by Kristen Flynn, Clancy, Seymour, and Anna Phillips. When we talk about weight bias, we are talking about obesity, being overweight, And uh, what is commonly colloquially referred to as fat. That is what we're talking about. And the biases that go along with those ideas.
1: There, there's bias in our educational system in a lot of different contexts. Uh, You know, we've talked about uh, bias related to race. We've talked about bias related to gender. And so in this context, we're talking about uh, people's perceptions, broadly people's perceptions and reactions to different body types. Uh, Some of them are perceived with positive bias. Some of them are perceived with negative bias. And so in this context, we're looking at some consistent negative bias associated with being overweight. Uh, And that's fairly well documented in the background research. Um, Some of the past research has identified that students who are obese uh, experience lower mathematics and reading scores, lower IQ scores, lower grade point average, uh, lower educational persistence, higher absenteeism, uh, lower grade retention, and placement in special education and remedial classes more often. If they're having that experience, then there must be something influencing
0: their education experience that consistently puts them in those lower tiers. So we've got to look at what are they experiencing and that's where this paper steps in. They're attempting to see if there are a link between grading behaviors and uh, weight bias in teachers.
1: I thought it was useful that they, the authors pointed out we've got these high-level numbers that demonstrate that there is bias in the system. And there's also a fairly robust background of research showing that there is bias in attitude and some of the more general attitudes associated with how um, people view and interact with um, others who are obese. Uh, but there's not a lot of research that's been done on these specific behaviors, a specific impact of people as they interact with others who are obese. And so this this research attempted to fill that gap to some extent.
0: So if we're gonna find out how teachers are gonna respond based on their bias, uh, we gotta get teachers to do something. So they had 133 teachers from middle and high school in schools that had a mixed socioeconomic status uh, and they participated on a professional development day and they were told that they were given papers to grade, sixth grade uh, assignments as a study to see if holistic teacher grading could replace standardized testing as a means of assessment.
1: I feel some kind of way about this deception. I understand deception has a role sometimes when you're doing this research, uh, but not shockingly, they got 100% of their teachers to agree to participate. Exactly, I wrote highly effective in my notes that it's
0: like, People have sent me surveys that say, be a part of this national survey after, And I say, no, I just put those surveys right in the recycling bin and I do not participate. But if they said, do this so that we can, you know, not hold you, you know, chain you to these large scale standardized tests, I'd be way more motivated to participate. And they got these teachers, man. They had volunteered to grade these papers.
1: And so I think it's worth pointing out, first of all, um, this is a really good sample of, Uh, From their target demographics, 100% means that they've got a good representation of that entire body of faculty across different subject areas, across the various couple of grade levels that are represented, um, the various attitudes and inclinations of the different teachers they've got with 100%. Um, This isn't even a sample. This is just the population from that particular area, uh, which is really useful. But I also think it's worth pointing out, this is still a fairly limited sample if we're trying to generalize this. This happened in New York. You and I are sitting in Kansas. You might be listening in California. And so this is a really good representation of that area. But this is a representation of that area. And I'd venture to guess that um, biases are not homogeneously distributed across our country. Uh, I would assure that they're not. Yeah. So how do they introduce bias to these students is the next
0: question. There were four essays. All the essays were basically run of the mill, average level, middle of the road essays. And that was verified by uh, external teachers independently. And then they, they got two students, female students, took headshots, wrote them a little biography that were attached to these four essays. And uh, then they digitally edited the pictures, the headshots of these female students, so that there was a healthy weight version and an overweight version of both. So really, there were four essays, but there were only two students, and they artificially created uh, bias by literally editing the face of the students whose pictures were on that headshot.
1: Which I... I thought it was a really clever way to control for all the other things that can influence um, our perception of attractiveness or desirability. I think that was a really clever uh, thing that they did. They acknowledged um, that because this was, I think it was a program. I don't think they did it manually. I think it was a program that that, made that, me- add, that added the weight to the photo after the fact. Um, and they acknowledged there, there was some imperfect... Um, algorithm there, right? It added the weight in particular areas of the face and didn't meaningfully change other parts of the face and that 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 might not be a perfect representation of evoking all of the possible bias that is present. And I think that they're right. I think that's true, but still a really clever way to control for some other possible confounding variables. That was neat. One thing to note,
0: at least I think it's worth noting, is that they consciously chose female students to be the models of the papers Because, uh, for two reasons, female students have a documented greater consequence from obesity bias. When obesity bias is present, females are more negatively impacted by that bias than males impacted by that bias. So they wanted to have uh, that feature present. And also, and this was new to me, that female students have greater risk of, quote, negative educational outcomes That was a statement. And I want actually to dive into that statement. I would like to know a lot more about female students being at greater risk of negative educational outcomes. If if this is what we mean, that would suggest that a female student with any disadvantage has a greater negative consequence to that disadvantage
1: justified with a relatively fresh citation. Uh, the The inline citation for that statement was from 2019, which means it hasn't really had a chance to filter through and be referenced or synthesized yet. So uh, we can go read that paper, but it's it's fairly new and probably hasn't had a chance to really reverberate yet. Uh, I, yeah, that would yeah. be interesting. There's more to know there. Reading good research, we reading good research. So, How about that? Yeah, I'm all about it. So basically, if we can build a picture here, imagine that we are going in on a professional development day. There are no classes, but it's a work day. We all gotta be there. We go into the gym. We're sitting with all the rest of our colleagues, from all the rest of our faculty, and a researcher from our partner university comes in, and we've seen them a lot, and they do various things around our school and district a lot. So this isn't particularly weird. They say, "Hey, we're studying. We're studying this thing. Um, would you like to participate?" And I sign my informed consent just like everybody around me, and so then they hand out these uh, the student work. We are randomly assigned a piece of student work, and we are asked to silently and independently read and evaluate that piece of student work. I'm giving a small handful of ratings. I'm looking at the composite of the perceived quality of the essay. I'm looking at the level of the work's neatness and I'm assigning a letter grade to the essay just based on my own judgment. And so uh, that might be different depending on whether I'm an English teacher or a science teacher or a physical education teacher or something else. Uh, But everybody was asked to do that very same thing independently by themselves without discussion. In the assessment, in addition to an overall grade and one about neatness, they were also asked to
0: assess sentence structure, word choice, and creativity.
1: And then after all of that, when we're all done assigning our grades, we're then asked to report on our attitudes related to student competence, uh, based on what we've read from the report and what we've gleaned from our processing of their biography. And so we were asked to judge the how much effort do we think the student put into this writing. Whether or not that student needed a remediation for their writing. What do we think their overall grade in school would probably be based on what we've seen from them. Uh, so those are, those are some extrapolations based on not very much information with the rationale being that uh, we would be filling in the gaps in that information with our own biases.
0: And finally they had a survey about teacher bias. Well, how did the teachers grade those papers? Well, we don't have to complicate it. They gave lower grades to the kids that were overweight uh, overall, though they said their sentence structure, word choice, and creativity were not were not any different, uh, though they did say they were less neat. Despite, the- I, I think
1: saying different, there were differences in overall quality overlooks the fact that they were bouncing around in the gray areas, like overall quality, did not reach their threshold of significance. A p of zero point zero seven. So it's not like it's not like it was obviously irrelevant. It just didn't hit their threshold of significance. be. Uh, and it's not the only one. There, as as we work our way down the table, some of them hit the threshold barely. Some of them hit the threshold like strongly, and some of them failed to hit the threshold. And so i I feel conflicted
0: they they say they are the same quality and gave them lower grades anyway, so like that was what I was going to say like we gave them a lower grade, even though we said the metrics of which we use to assess the quality of these papers are the same
1: i think the I think the point stands speaking of I like your conclusions and I feel complicated <laughs> about your justifications <laughs> i I think the point is relevant, but the difference. In the p value is three hundredths of a, of a point. So you are not, you are not, you are So we we need impressed. to be careful about planting our feet. You said they're the same, but they definitely were different. Well, they were barely the same, and they are barely different. Uh, okay. <laughs> so if we were just to set them side by side, they're close. Like the the two are very close to each other. They just happen to straddle the threshold. Which might be meaningful. I'm not. I'm not saying that it's irrelevant. I'm just saying the effect of weight bias is small. I think that's uh, was small in this measurement. Yeah, small but not irrelevant. Small but not irrelevant. Their analysis of quality suggested there was slight, if any, differences between the weight categories, but their analysis of neat, neatness was a was a little bit more different between between the weight categories. So they so then the weight of neatness is bringing their grades down. Uh, but but both of them I think both of them are meaningful. Even the even the category where you've got a difference in overall quality that didn't hit their threshold of significance, that's a really interesting subgroup analysis. Like I'm not prepared to say safe. I don't right. think that. I think that we have a measurement of some bias there, which is a difficult thing to see. For a teacher, when you sit in a faculty, and I believe that the faculty at large would say to anybody interested in hearing, we want to serve all of our students. I think that. But we have a measurement here that is that is suggesting there's bias in their analysis of these essays, just with the manipulation of a headshot.
0: Um, teachers assumed that overweight students exhibited more effort than the... Uh, Healthy weight students. Teachers more often recommended remediation for the overweight students, and teachers assumed overweight students
1: would have lower grades in schools for through their courses. And I think this is the more I don't know I don't know if I want to say important, um, but this is what this batch of results struck me more because that that is bias in its purest form as far as i as far as i think about it is to see the same work and say yes you achieved this but gosh <laughs> you got there barely versus somebody else who it just looks different like you got this done and i expected you to why did you expect them to get it done or why did you expect that to be baseline effort versus considerable effort and those sorts of assumptions lead to some of the things like uh, mistakenly allocating students to remediation services special education services which the converse is also true not making them eligible for advanced or enriched services if they need them uh, and so that's the piece where we can take steps to try and reduce bias in our grades and we can we'll talk about that a little later um, but those biases and attitudes we just have to we have to address our attitude I yeah. Um, the only difference is the
0: headshot. So we're putting expected effort levels based on that headshot and we're putting expected school performance overall on that headshot. Um, and we're, we're putting remediation expectations on that headshot. Well, clearly that's ludicrous. And, um, I, And they even addressed this in the paper that uh identifying the students as uh you know they had to work harder um i found that confounding and confusing because i use those terms as accolades Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure what context they meant and even they said uh we're not really sure what context the teachers thought this was either so we're kind of like shrugging on this one so what does it mean to expect that a student worked harder are, y'all, are you proud of them? Are you disappointed in them? Yeah. Is it growth mindset? Is it fixed mindset? What lens are you looking at when you use the phrase work harder?
1: We don't really know. Uh, and I think that goes along with, I'm curious to know whether their survey included an I don't know response. Was there a teacher who could say, I'm not answering this because I don't have enough information to make even a reasonable guess? Uh, I, I'm guessing not. I'm guessing it was a forced choice. Yeah. In which case, because the whole point is fill in with your biases when the reality is we should stick to our ignorance. We should defend our ignorance, which brings me to
0: the, the comments in this paper that really got me fired up because I did get fired up when I read this. Um, one was teachers did not believe strongly that grades were influenced by bias. They did not believe it. And that really struck me because we really like to hold on to the illusion of objectivity in education all over the place, whether it's standardized testing or whether it's, I'm going to subjectively grade it, but I'm going to do it with a rubric, so it's officially objective. I I think that all of that is ridiculous. Just the context of the classroom is biased. The way that building is constructed is biased. Who gets to be their teacher is biased. There is so much bias in that classroom. It is absurd to think that it wouldn't affect grades. And the fact that Teachers did not believe strongly that grades were influenced by bias is a problem. Uh, I have been saying this for a while now, so I've probably said it on this podcast before. The only way to not be discriminatory is to acknowledge that we are biased. We are biased. I am biased. Ralph is biased. And you, listener, are biased. That is how our brains work make fast decisions about situations we're familiar with and then just use that judgment over and over and over again for the rest of your life. That is how our brains want to default. And we have to accept that we are biased and critically review our decisions and who we're interacting with. We have to be conscious of it if we're going to change that. It further, it came up again later in the paper. They said, some of the results from the study are encouraging that despite negative perceptions of students who are overweight, teachers did not perceive the overall quality and structural characteristics of the work to be inferior to that of the healthy weight students. And I know we just hashed this out, but despite that being true, they then gave them a lower grade. So I didn't find that comforting at all because that not only does that means that we've got this weight bias thing going on, it also means that the grades teachers award are not representative of knowledge or skill competency.
1: Well, and it comes back around to your comments of we are biased. My grades have some of my bias baked into them, and there's not a thing I can do to eliminate it. I can't make them truly objective. And so there's going to be some bias, and I need to accept, I need to, I need to work to reduce that but it's then back to their comments about their statement that my grades are not biased. That's false. Right. Cause that means that we are not reflect critically reflecting and analyzing on them. And so if that's for me, that's the problem. Yes. The grades are biased. And so the grades are biased. There, there it is. What are we doing to address that? Yes. Bias? Yeah.
0: That's the thing is that if we allow it to go unchecked, then we are discriminatory. Yeah. And that's the line. We, we can't like, we're trying to make ourselves feel better by saying, Hey, I'm not biased and I'm doing everything's fairly that's the trap that you set for yourself to discriminate systemically.
1: Yeah.
0: I am biased. I've got to critically look at the grades that I'm giving and why I'm giving them and assess the work. Why, why is it this way? If, if rubrics help you do that good, but recognize the construction of rubrics can also be biased. So you've got to critically look at it, which brings us to how can we do better in our grading practices? Yeah. Cause it's all about shoulds. So,
1: well, and you've mentioned before, there are steps we can take to narrow our error bars, right? We can right. take steps like building clear, clear prompts and constructing in advance uh, rubrics to analyze student work that directly relates to learning objectives that we've clearly articulated to our students. And there are some resources that we've linked on our show notes uh, to talk about how to do that effectively. So there are steps we can take uh, to reduce the, the bias, the error, the, the my influence over student grades, but they are not going to eliminate them. Uh, the second piece was a piece of this study that we really ought to be doing if we want to be effective in really meaningfully taking steps to reduce bias. And that is anonymous grading is effective. Yeah. And they this study was designed to prevent anonymous grading, right? They gave them headshots and bios because they wanted to see the effect of failing to anonymize. If we really want to be giving every student a chance to be analyzed um, with a relatively equivalent Um, aspect of who I am as a grader, I've got to anonymize the work. And that can include steps like ask them to type rather than handwrite. And that can include hiding the student names on my papers. And there are other things that are in those materials, taking steps. If I don't need to know who wrote it, then let me just evaluate the work based on its own merit.
0: I, you know, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to toot my own horn right here, because for for about four or five years now, I put a cover sheet on all of my tests and the the students put their name on the cover sheet. And then when it's time for me to grade, I flip the cover sheet over on all the tests and shuffle them. And then I grade them without knowing whose test I'm grading. So I I have been doing anonymous grading of my own accord. And I just, when I read that, I was like, oh, I just felt good about myself. Yeah. Like it made me feel good.
1: Uh, so I'm curious because because, uh, I know when we were teaching together, your, your work is handwritten, right? Yeah. So how good are you at well, identif- re-identifying handwriting? I'm
0: really good at being anonymously grading in quarter one and really bad at it in quarter yeah. four. That's what happens. Yeah. So my, my, uh, that effectivity decreases. Uh, but there was another, um, another suggestion that they made, which is evaluate student responses to items all together one item at a time. Mm -hmm. So don't grade this student's complete test because then impressions of earlier competency can influence later competency. Whereas if you've got a different essay on every page or a different problem on every page and you're grading that one problem, the way you're applying the rubric to that problem is more likely to be consistent. The way that you are scoring that problem is more likely to be consistent. And the errors that you're looking for with that problem are more likely to be consistent if you are concentrating on that one task for all of your students at once, and then put that one to bed, go to the next page and do the next problem. Yeah.
1: Another thing that I often did in that kind of a framework is the first several responses are often just me getting my bearings for the kinds of answers students are giving. Uh, so if I'm grading you know, 115 responses to an item, I. I'll either flip through and read maybe a dozen or 15 without doing any marking just to kind of get my bearings on the kinds of, kinds of submissions students are making. Or if I'm working straight through, I might, I might tentatively score the first 10 and then flip back through after I'm done and like, okay, did I, was that really something I was holding them accountable for? Did I get flexible on that after a couple more reads or whatever? And I might, I might revisit those first couple of submissions. Uh, in their conclusion, the authors also made a comment. Uh, they they said, I'm going to quote it, Teachers may experience dissonance between anti-fat attitudes and the belief that all students deserve equal treatment. Does dissonance lead to teacher stress or a need to adjust behavior? And I really, I think the answer is about culture, which gets to where we're going to go. Yeah. The answer is about if I'm in a school where we say, we give everyone an equal chance, and if anybody has any inclination that that's not happening, shut up. Because we are equal opportunity by God. Now everybody toe the line. Uh, then I'm going to stress about that yeah. if, I, if I want to be critically reflective. Because all I'm doing is pointing out things that are threats to me. To and that it. makes me worse as a teacher, because yeah. cortisol does not make us better at any cognitive yeah. task. If I'm building a culture that is, hey, we're all just doing our best to get better. Let's talk about it. Hey, how are you struggling? What mistakes did you make today? How can we do them better tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Then I say, gosh, hey, you know what? I feel like I feel like maybe I've been a little bit discriminatory to some of my students based on my ableist perspective. And I I'd like to do better with that. Let's talk about it. Let's see, here are some strategies to make that better. And it can be it can be affirming, right? It can be a relief. It can be cathartic to be able to talk about that with colleagues and have directions for growth, have agency over that difficulty. Versus if I'm isolated and I'm threatened and I'm alone. And so I feel like that dissonance is a problem if we're unwilling to talk about it.
0: Uh, Well, yeah. And I think that that dissonance, what you're describing, it's not just for our profession. That works at every level. That works personally. I am feeling a problem in my relationship, in my friendship, in my hobbies, in whatever. Where there is dissonance, there is a problem that needs to be solved. And always you can... Ignore it and let the problem grow, or you can address it Mm -hmm. and do what you can to put it out.
1: Make better mistakes. All right. Well, welcome back. Let's pivot. Our second segment is going to look at um, the Journal of Cognitive Psychology, and we're going to read the article, Speak Your Mind, and I Will Make It Right, The Case of the Selection Task. Uh, this was written by Maschi, Caravona, Poli, Bagassi, and Francella.
0: And the reason why we're having difficulty with
1: these names is because they are Italian. This is an Italian study. Uh, and this is really, this is written by what what I understand to be logicians. This is about um, how humans interact with formal logic, uh, which may not immediately sound relevant to K-12 teachers, uh, but I think that it's going to plug in. Uh, so what is the selection task? Uh, the selection task was a test uh, created asking, uh, giving um, a
0: participant a couple of rules about relationships and then saying, essentially, what is the fewest number of moves you need to make in this puzzle to find out that all the rules are satisfied? That's what its purpose is. And that's uh, let's, how let's it works. Let's
1: pause. I want to break. I want to let you yeah, open well, a beer and let's go. You, yeah, I did. You did I a did.
0: logician. You gave me a logician question. I did. I, I think
1: um, this, is, this one is... I, based on their paper, I think we need to give them more authentic and concrete examples in describing so them. So, the... Yeah. The
0: problem with this is, the problem with the, I don't think we should, I think we should put what we just did on the air, by the way. Sure. Because it is an example of, that's terrible. (laughs) 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 I answered everything truthfully, and they should be able to infer everything about this paper from that description. But
1: it doesn't, but it doesn't work, right? Even me sitting here, and I've read the paper, and I was listening to you talk, and I was struggling to follow. Yeah. Uh, So uh, that was one of the major findings. There was basically four cards. Uh, two of them, you can see the front, and two of them, you can see the back. And they gave you a rule. They said, if uh, this card has an A on it, it must have a four on the back. Now flip over the cards you must to make sure that, that rule is not violated. Um, and they posed that question in lots of different ways to try and figure out, does the way that we present the task influence how well humans can do this task and they did that because the original foundational um, representation of this study was done in 1966 uh, by FOSS and they found humans are terrible at this task. Like what was it? Terrible. Like 10%? Yeah my brain says nine but it was low. Super low. Yeah less than 10% of all subjects correctly solved this four-card problem. And so the researcher was like, oh my gosh, we are just broken organisms. (laughs) And so what we've been trying to figure out since then is why are people struggling on this task? And so they looked at, well, are we posing the task wrong?
0: And there have been a series of revisions to this experiment that shows that the way you couch the task does affect uh, success rate of the participants.
1: By a lot.
0: Absolutely. And this... Uh, paper was kind of an aggregate. Let's put all of those uh, proposed influences together into one big test or series of tests and see which ones that uh, are the most important and impactful and powerful if you're going to improve Uh, your participants' success in a logic-based task.
1: And so uh, one of the early themes in what they're laying out in the history of this study is originally people are saying, okay, you're presenting this task in a fairly abstract logician statement, and we as logicians know what that means. But the way we talk in formal logic is not equivalent to natural language. And I think that's important for right. educators because formal logic is a language. Statistics has some of its own language and science has some of its own Absolutely. language. And they are not equivalent to natural language. And they pointed out, there was a spot where they said, when there's divergence in the possible meaning of a statement between the formal meaning and the colloquial meaning, our brains default to the colloquial natural language meaning. And that is evolutionarily appropriate. Like we shouldn't fight that or we want our brains to do that. But that means that we are predisposed to fill in areas of ambiguity, contrary to the formal meaning that we might have as teachers or experts.
0: I feel like, I feel like we're jumping to the shoulds like, because to me, this was very resonant with what we know about disciplinary literacy that We've got our layman's language, but the way we talk about analyzing literature in English is not necessarily the way we talk to each other. And the way we talk about a science phenomenon is not the way we talk to each other. So as teachers, our job is to not just translate the the content jargon into accessible language for our students, and it isn't even just uh, help our students uh, access and learn to read that and speak that jargon for themselves, but it's to help them know when to do both of those things. And uh, that's kind of one of the shoulds that we get once we get to the results here. And that is when the task is translated to regular
1: everyday language, there is this
0: huge increase in rate of success.
1: Uh, And there are two aspects to this translation that they tested and that then we saw an effect of. Uh, The first was giving the task an authentic, relatable context was a big deal. And some of the past research thought that it was the biggest deal. Uh, And you know me. I love authentic context. You sure do. Oh my goodness, I think it's among the best things ever. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and even say why I think it is so effective. Because if if I as an item designer am writing in an authentic context, I have the ability to understand, predict, and communicate uh, implied information that I'm gonna have a much harder time understanding and predicting when I'm working with somebody who's a different level of competency than me. And so if I'm in a real context, I am much more likely to give the information they actually need and to predict the information they actually need uh, in ways that I might not even be conscious of if I'm trying to write in that formal, isolated academic language. And so we're giving them adequate information to then provide the responses we're seeking. And I point that out to make that a a big issue because... It's possible somebody may fallaciously say, if they don't understand what I'm asking, they don't understand the content, they should get it wrong. And I think that's a mistake. If I'm not adequately asking the question, they're not answering what I am trying to ask. And that is my burden as the creator of the assessment. So there was two pieces. The first one is give authentic context. And the second one is related to that. And that is make explicit all of the pieces of the instructions or the context of the task that you're trying to provide. And so they tested both of those. And what they found was you saw you reproduced this massive jump in participant performance with both of those things. And that spike all but disappeared. In fact, I think statistically it did disappear without, without both of them present. If it was only one or the other, both cases, they were indistinguishable from the one that had neither. Right you must support both but what's dramatic is when you look at the actual difference between the between the instances of the task they look so incredibly similar that i can hear myself saying in a plc if we're trying to decide between these different iterations i don't care they're so similar who what does it matter it matters a ton it matters so much yeah language matters language matters a lot in fact the difference between the explicit instructions and the implicit instructions is no more than saying explicitly about halfway through the other side of this coin the non-example doesn't matter yeah that's That's it that's the whole thing they just insert that statement and they remove it from the other one inserting the opposite of our rule is irrelevant which is logically inferable but just saying it out loud is all that it takes to satisfy being explicit about your rules.
0: Well, it. I'm thinking about this a little more, and it might remove some burden in the working memory to just draw this barrier that says these things don't matter. So when you're considering your logical calculations, you can immediately stop worrying about them, and you don't have to factor whether or not they're going to matter in your considerations. They don't. Just, it's great. Which means, so let's get to shoulds.
1: Yeah. What does it mean I'm a teacher? Well, I,
0: what does that's mean?
1: one that's one interpretation that wasn't my interpretation Oh, I'm that, gonna was be my interpretation. that wasn't my, I don't I didn't think it was a, um, a cognitive burden interpretation. The there was a statement uh, this was this was a little way through where there's a probabilistic strategy in approaching this task that is reasonable in a lot of real-world contexts. Where if I have four cards and I don't know what's on the back of I, I don't know what's on the opposite side of either of them and I don't fully understand the parameters of the game I'm playing, the way to get the most information about the system... Is to look at the most Is to, to flip it, both of them, on one side. like Flip both fronts, or flip both backs. That makes sense, because it has the greatest information yield but it's not consistent with the formal logic that's actually being requested of the problem. So if you have ambiguous or poorly defined parameters of your problem, people are going to activate other strategies to get information to just try to be better equipped to operate in the system. So it goes back to that difference between colloquial language, natural language, and the formal academic languages that we might be asking them to operate within. If we don't properly define enough of the parameters and the assumptions of those academic languages, they're gonna just try to stay alive and activate these other strategies that are 100% rational. Yeah, I was about to say, um,
0: we live in a world where there will be future problems. And so gaining more information about this problem now will have dividends in the future period. So if you're looking at a, a logic puzzle and you're like, I don't get it. I don't know how to do the thing they've asked me to do, solve it in one or two moves. So I'm gonna make four moves and uh, I'm gonna be better off for future puzzles because I did that. Mm-hmm. And That makes total sense. Just toss this one under the bus, grow as much as you can with it, and then you're in a better position. That's, that's great. Logically. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so the irony is that performing this particular puzzle illogically is logical if you don't understand this particular puzzle. Uh,
1: and so you mentioned shoulds. Let's get back to shoulds yeah. because we are teachers and we're trying to design tasks for our students. And that was what drew me to this paper to begin with. And so this dramatic jump when we consider what is what's the information, what are the how what's the clarity of the parameters? by which we provide this task and the dramatic impact it has on our participant success tells us something about how we should be designing our tasks for assessing our students. It's, it's not, I mean, you say designing, it's not
0: the task that's different. It's how do we talk about the task to our students? The tasks were the same all five times. They were the same exact tasks. Exactly. So, Give your kids. They talked about this. Some duty within that context. Mm-hmm. Give them a responsibility within the context,
1: and then. I just I love that you pointed out duty because the paper was clear about even you just use the word find defects versus comply with the task. Like like a switch of a word had a had a meaningful impact on yep. how people interacted with it. So give them a context. Give them a duty,
0: and then clearly communicate in regular everyday language that they can use and are familiar with the logical inferences uh, of your task. Intent Matters.
1: Our last segment, we are reading a third paper. This is a this is more of an opinion piece. This was published in the MIT Press Journal. This title is "Maximizing Research Use in the World We Actually Live In: Relationships, Organizations, and Interpretation." This is by Kerry Conway, uh, published in 2019. And so she kind of begins by laying out the initial misconception that she says she held, and I know that I have held before, that is, if I want to go out and have research impact policy, step one is find what works. And she says, that that's kind of a foolish perspective because there have been researchers working on how to make research impactful for a while. We have policy briefs. We have practical syntheses of research. So that's not really what's necessary. One more study, one more brief is not going to change the way we think about research in the world of policy. That's not that's not what it's about. It's It's a change in perspective.
0: Furthermore,
1: the find what works
0: answer implies that there is a solution that is the correct answer out there. We just have to read enough till we find it. And then we do that thing and that's it.
1: Step one is building relationships between practitioners, policymakers, and researchers, because there's plenty of things out there that can impact policy for the better, but we have to make the connections so that they can have that impact. Those connections are by far the most valuable piece of this. And that resonates with me because we've emphasized the importance of of relationships on this show often.
0: And, when you when you do the analysis of the extremes it seems obvious if you have policymakers who never talk to or know anything about teachers and they're making laws about teachers well that's clearly crazy that's crazy they have to know about teachers and the experiences of teachers to make laws that affect teachers and if you you look at any of the three people in any three entities in this in this triangle policymakers researchers and teachers, If they're operating in isolation, it's terrible. We need to consider what does it look like at the other instance of the scale. And communication is difficult. Communication is complex politicians use one set of jargon and researchers use other set of jargon and teachers use other set of jargon which means we've got to work on uh, communicating with each other in terms that we understand we've got to understand the different priorities of a researcher and of a politician and of a teacher and find where they overlap so that we can grow together in that place
1: And so if I'm going to talk to researchers specifically, I have to point out that my time at the Center for STEM Learning at KU has been intentional about investing time, my time, to make those connections because it's not easy. There's not a shortcut to building relationships. There just isn't. So if you want to have some way to build relationships with your area educators and your area's policymakers with 5% of your contract, you're going to do a bad job. Because it takes time, it takes energy, it takes investment. There's just no way around it. And so understanding the importance of those relationships can help you justify investing what it really takes to spend time in schools, to spend time at the events where policymakers are having discussions and crafting that policy is the only way to build those relationships in any meaningful way. I'm really pleased to say I've had that opportunity at the center to this point, but it's pretty uncommon because it's hard sometimes to carve out the time necessary in your schedule to be out in the field as much as it takes. There are a lot of other things we can do with our time. You have to really internalize the importance and value of those relationships. Empower each other. How was the beer? I like this beer, which is interesting because I said in the open that I was predisposed to not like it, but I like it.
0: Oh, it's got a slightly bitter aftertaste, but the front is nice and complex and spicy and sweet, but not saccharine. I like the front. I like the middle because you got that like mellow alcohol flavor because it's a 12.4. So it is strong. Um, it, it, the, the, the end has got a tiny bitter taste, but the consequence of that tiny bitter taste is to put more in your mouth. And so it is very drinkable, very smooth it I, at first i said it smelled like cider and i think that i still keep to that but it doesn't taste like cider
1: uh yeah the 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 infusion from that apple brandy is just subtle enough that i can enjoy it without it overwhelming the front half of that palate and then as you say just the strength i mean this thing this thing is a wine and a beer bottle, we, um, but it is so mellow. It comes out so clean and smooth that, uh, yeah, I could drink that all the long day. Thanks for listening in for another month. Uh, we want to point out to you that we are better together. So if you enjoyed listening to this or you want to have somebody to talk to about it, we encourage you to share with a colleague or suggest, uh, hey, check out this paper. We can bring it to a PLC. If you didn't enjoy this, tell us
0: about that. We want to know how you're improving And we want you to tell us how we can improve
1: as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.